Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here. I am packing, getting ready for San Diego Comic-Con. And uh, I mention that because uh, today's guest uh, will be joining me at San Diego Comic-Con for the panel that I'm doing there, Bill Sienkiewicz. Yeah, that's right, Bill Sienkiewicz. As I said at the beginning of the episode, I have been uh, trying to uh, collaborate with Bill on a podcast for years, uh, always friendly, and it's really been a pleasure to get to know him slightly over the years, and uh, always a real, you know, earnest hello, and, you know, how's it going and everything, and, and could not have be a nicer guy, and I'm so glad that finally he's made time not only to join us on Word Balloon today for a really nice conversation. I even made him stay a little bit longer. He said 60 minutes. I almost kept him 90 minutes. But uh, also, we're going to be doing this panel Thursday afternoon, 2.30 at uh, Comic-Con. It's the New Mutants Retrospective. Now, in this interview, I don't spend a lot of time on the New Mutants purposely because I know we're going to be talking about that at uh, the, the panel at Comic-Con on Thursday. So, with that in mind, you get a bit of Bill's origins, uh, some of the people that he met as uh, he finally broke into comics, uh, great Vinnie Coletta stories, Neil Adams, his first impressions of Neil Adams, which is pretty shocking given that uh, for a long time, uh, early in his career, uh, Bill was considered kind of somebody in the vein of Neil Adams. And to say that now almost sounds crazy because everyone is well aware of uh, Bill's uh, painting style when he's doing his own art. Uh, but we talk about his collaborations with uh, some wonderful writers and artists and uh, get into Electra Assassin, his work with Frank Miller on uh, Daredevil, uh, just really interesting stuff. Future uh, projects like uh, uh, Punisher End of Days, which, uh, you know, is a follow-up to Daredevil End of Days, which he did with uh, David Mack and Brian Bendis and Klaus Janssen. Sounds like Bill is uh, part of the team for the sequel. So uh, really interesting information, lots of fun stories. Bill was afraid that maybe he was going off on tangents. You know, it's word balloon. That's that's what we're all about, man. We want we want the we want the uh, left turns. And oh, by the way, that reminds me of this. That's what makes word balloon word balloon. So it's great to have Bill Sienkiewicz on his first conversation today on word balloon. It's all brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Man, I'll tell you, League. I told you guys uh, all that uh, the whole listening audience that I'm um, going to Comic Con, and uh, so many people have responded, and so many new. Uh, patrons via Patreon, and uh, I can't thank you enough. Seriously, it, it really means a lot, and uh, it does make it easier as I am uh, pursuing and pushing Word Balloon, trying to expand it, and uh, really, your support means a lot. And uh, not only uh, monetarily through Patreon, if you do that at patreon.com slash Word Balloon, or click on the Patreon ad on uh, the front page of wordballoon.com, but also... The, listeners, the listenership in general, which has expanded, such a great response to the Tom King interview last time. And, uh, you know, I've, I've just been really fortunate and I've uh, had great guests that are willing to uh, give really interesting interviews and conversations. And uh, that's what makes Word Balloon special. And I'm so happy to share it with you each week. Thank you very much for your support. League of Word Balloon listeners, if you like Word Balloon, good news is it's free. It's always going to be free. But uh, if you can spare it, you think... Uh, you know, Word Balloon adds to your uh, enjoyment of the hobby. I, I kind of look at it as a weekly panel. You know, I mean, God, they, they limited us to only an hour at uh, most conventions and really only about uh, 50 to 55 minutes because they want people to clear the room and get ready for the next panel. Word Balloon, there is no restrictions. I mean, Tom King, classic example, three-hour conversation. Bendis, Rucka. You know, all the regulars that uh, I let uh, go on, and also the newcomers as well. And we've got a newcomer on our next episode that I'm excited to share with you. But uh, that's what I love about Word Balloon. 
And, uh, you know, if, again, if it helps you, if you think it, it you know, uh, improves your enjoyment of, uh, of reading comics and being part of the comics culture, if you can spare it, uh, is it worth the price of a comic? Is it worth a dollar or something like that? Thank you very much. You can uh, contribute and subscribe to Word Balloon by going to wordballoon.com, clicking on the Patreon ad, or going to patreon.com slash wordballoon. Thanks again, League of Word Balloon listeners. Word Balloon is also brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. I'm still looking at the books that came out from last week from InStock Trades, and uh, you can get things like Midnighter, the complete Wild Storm series, written by Garth Ennis and others, drawn by Chris Sprouse and others. Uh, pretty neat stuff. Uh, who else is on here? Keith Giffen is in here. Carl Story is in here. Uh, it is how long? How many pages? 512 pages. 50% off. It's just $19.99. You can get the first volume of Charles Soule and Ryan Brown's Curse Words. Very happy for the guys. So glad things are working out. The uh, the big uh, Curse Words tour. I forget if it's underway or not, but this is volume one. It collects the first five issues. It is 50% off, $4.99 to sample Curse Words and see if you want to go on Charles and Ryan's journey with them. How about uh, Tales of the Batman? Jerry Conway focus. And man, you get Jose Luis Garcia Lopez in there. And uh, wonderful art, amazing writing. I'm such a Jerry Conway fan. He's been on the show several times. Uh, there's a reason for that. The guy was just great. And this is uh, uh, various times that he's written Batman and uh, had runs at Detective Comics. It also includes Brave and Bold stories, a story from Batman uh, family. What else have we got? Several issues of the regular Batman uh, series, the first issue of Man Bat, and a couple of World's Finest comics. 440 pages. It is 50% off, $24.99. You can get Doctor Strange, Sorcerer Supreme Omnibus Hardcover, Volume 1. Uh, you know, I wish they would re- re- uh, list the credits on this thing. You get a great Gene Colan cover. And again, it collects Doctor Strange, Sorcerer Supreme 1 through 40, and uh, the Ghost Rider issue of uh, 19, the 1990 series, it's issue 12. 1,064 pages, 60% off, $50 from InStockTrades.com. Some of the great deals happening now. Don't forget, if your orders are $50 or more, you'll receive free shipping from InStockTrades.com. All right, without further ado, uh, oh, I forgot. Word Balloon sponsored by Alex Ross Art. Shame on me, because uh, that's uh, the reason why I'm going to be able to go to Comic-Con, is the sponsorship of Alex Ross Art. I will be doing video at the Alex Ross booth, look for uh, live Facebook uh, videos and also uh, some uh, pre-recorded uh, videos that I hope to do interview-wise. But uh, going to be spending a lot of time at the Alex Ross booth and the Bill Sinkevich booth. Alex Ross's booth is 2415. It's right across from Marvel. Uh, you'll see it uh, very close to the DC booth and the Aspen booth. You can never miss the Alex Ross booth because of the logo and the wonderful Alex Ross art. That is right there. Giant banners of some of the great images and iconic things that Alex Ross is a part of. But uh, come join me at Comic-Con. Uh, like I said, I'll be doing some live video there. I hope, you, I hope to see you at the con. And if I do, give me the chance to thank you for supporting Word Balloon. But thank you very much for the support, Alex Ross Art. Okay, and with that in mind, let us uh, start our conversation with Bill Sinkevich on Word Balloon. Finally, Bill Sinkevich. Welcome to Word Balloon. Man, we've been talking about doing this for years, and I'm so glad that we're finally doing it. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like I keep, it's great, great to be here. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really surprised it's like that it's taken us this long. It's, you know, it's one of those things. It's, it's like, uh, you know, we see each other so often, 
that uh, we sort of assume or presume that we will be able to any time. And it's almost like when you have, you know, it's like living in New York City and not going to the Statue of Liberty or the Empire State Building <laughs> until relatives come, you know, it's a special occasion, you know. I hear so you, I don't man. mean that's like, sound like I'm take, like taking you for granted or anything. Not at all. You know, I mean, my God, it's like you're, you know, you're the Empire State Building of uh a podcast. Oh, you're so. very sweet, dude. No, hey, well then, uh, you are the Chrysler building of of uh, comic book artists as well. If I, you know, we can't. Oh my gosh! Well, that, that's uh, hey, people, Google those, Google those things. Those, that what he just says means something. <laughs> you know, I was such a bumpkin my first trip to New York. Me and uh, another radio guy, we got, we I uh, went to cover an HBO fight for uh, one of the CBS Sports Talk station in Chicago, and uh, right. we walk it. We're walking towards a building, and I'm like. I think that's the Empire State Building. I'm, I'm not sure. I think it. And this guy walking by goes, Chrysler Building. I'm like, yeah, thanks. Okay, Abbott and Costello make it to New York. The bumpkins are in New York now. So I was schooled, but it's good. It's, I mean, that's a, that's a beautiful building. But anyway. Uh, yeah. Yes. You know, but no, this is great. I, I want to start at the beginning because, geez, what a career. And, uh, you know, I mean, tell me. I, I, I'm, I've read a couple things, and uh, it sounds like you started drawing at a very early age. Yeah, um, yeah, it's, it's you know it's it's it's, it's hardly a new line that I've said, but it, it sort of seems the one that the one that fits descriptively for me is you know is that I you know I knew uh, uh, what I wanted to do at a very young age. It sort of it chose it selected me, art selected me. So I really had no say in the matter. It just was the the um, uh, the you know I, other people who you know go through their lives saying I don't know what I want to do. Um, you know, I, I have had no idea what that, uh, what that feels like. So, uh, and I suppose I should consider myself incredibly fortunate. Well, you know, so. the talent, the talent will out. I mean, you know, so, uh, who were your early comic book guys that you really were fascinated by as a kid? Well, the one that I, I mean, it's, it, you know, the ubiquity of, uh, of, uh, Superman growing up with, uh, with Kurt Swan, um, was certainly there. Um, and again, not to sort of overuse the analogy of, uh, the empire state building, but, uh, um, he was sort of like a tried and true kind of, he was always there. It was like this, uh, um, like if he didn't exist, we'd have to invent him kind of a thing for <laughs> Superman. Um, but the idea of the person, the artist that really sort of struck me in terms of kind of odd artistic decisions and choice making that, that really, um, was where it felt like it was art. And what I mean by that was that um, the illustrations that Kurt would do for Superman were, were amazing and the storytelling, and they completely like involved me as a reader in the story. But then um, Carmine Infantino's work on The Flash was the thing that sort of um, really sort of ignited my curiosity more than, than, uh, than Kurt did because uh, – he would do these, I mean, just simply like the, the graphic sensibility that he would employ when he would have the flash racing through central city, you know, that, that sort of wisp of a line, you know, that, that red and, and uh, that streak across yes. the panel to connote the speed. And also his, his, uh, his very distinctive captions with the fingers and the hands sort of gesturing yes. like in, into the panel and out of the panel. <laughs> that to me, I mean, you, you never saw that in any Superman story. I mean, that was just, that was something that was, absolutely Kurt Swan. I mean, I'm sorry, Carmine and, um, not, uh, 
you know, it seemed to fit the flash. So it felt like it became, uh, at a very young age, uh, this sensibility that, even though I might not have known all the artists, certainly with Marvel, they were uh, a little late to the game in terms of giving credit. But, um, but even then, I started to realize that there were personalities and distinctive styles. Uh, you know, to the arts. I know it's a rather long-winded answer. Not at all. But, um, I know it exactly. But what you're uh, that about. was yeah. that was Kurt. That I mean, that was like the difference between Kurt and um, uh, you know Carmine for me. And uh, and then of course, you know, when Neil Adams came on board with the covers, uh, that was really incredibly upsetting to me. I, I actually despise Neil's work, and he knows this. And I think most people, <laughs> you know, who've, who've heard from me before talk about this. Um, you know, they can relate. And I've, and I've actually had people come up to me, um, you know, passing the torch, so to speak. You know, I hated your work when I first saw it, and then I grew up, and now I kind of tolerate it. You know, it's that kind of, uh, that kind of, yeah, it's that kind of, of change. I don't know whether that's, you know, maturing as, a, as or growing or getting, just simply getting older or, um, you know, realizing that, that you can't buck the tide. Like this, you know, this guy's here to stay. That's you know. awesome, man. But actually, with Neil, so what? What Neil did was um, caused me to wholesale uh, bail on DC Comics. <laughs> I just went. I'm, I'm out. It was. It was that. It was that reactive, reactionary uh, for me. It was like. I, it's like I just got to get away from this. So, I guess that that probably speaks more to the passion that I felt for the medium, and um, you know, because it wasn't just another style. It was uh, an affront. I understand, so, but that's when I, I switched over to um, to Marvel, and you know, and obviously got got really into Kirby. Even though I'd seen some Marvel stuff, you know, some of the collections, you know, the the uh, you know, the multi issue sort of com- compendiums, you know, like sort of the eighty page giant version of uh, of Marvel stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, but that's when I really kind of got into the FF and Kirby. And uh, you know Thor, the the whole the whole minor Spider Man, you know you name it, and I was hooked. And then I, you know, I slowly and I realize I'm, I'm answering the question you have asked, but like yeah, you're going p- back further after Neil's stuff sort of became, uh, like the beacon of what I wanted to be. By the time I had sort of grasped onto what he was doing and realized just the level of his uh, of his talent, um, I was fully immersed in comics. As as a you know the full the full tilt medium and art form. You know, there's a one more DC guy from the Silver Age that I wonder if you had an opinion of back then because it's different. But there's some sort of I see some sort of link to the way Nick Cardi was doing those really interesting. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, Nick again when he was doing. I mean, he would do a lot of the covers which I absolutely yes. loved. But when he was doing the Teen Titans specifically, exactly. even being on Batlash and. Uh, um, Aquaman and uh, you know some of the way yeah Aquaman. Um, for some reason, I think I I Aquaman I enjoyed, but but you know for me he always sort of suffered from the jokes that everybody um, you know sort of still uh, you know put to him. You <laughs> I know? understand. So um, he was a fine supporting character, and I enjoyed it. But uh, but in terms of the Teen Titans, when he was uh, when he was doing, I think he was also he also for. A, I think a couple of issues. I think he, I think he inked Gil Kane, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, that's interesting. Um, you might be right. Yeah, that's cool. yeah. And um, I would. I, that's the one thing I got to know Nick very well, and uh, what an incredibly sweet, talented man. And um, uh, one of my, you know, my great disappointments. I mean, I've been very fortunate to be able to ink or do finishes over 
a lot of my my heroes. Carmen Infantino being one of them, and Neil being another. Um, unfortunately, Kurt, Kurt Swan, uh, I never was able to oh, uh, to work over. But uh, but I did uh, meet his daughter, who was actually a bartender at the bar and restaurant downstairs from uh, my studio in Westport, um, which was, uh, I don't think she even remembers me, but she was actually a bartender there. So I was sort of like one one degree of separation from Kurt. <laughs> sure. Uh, That's awesome, man. Uh, That's fantastic. And but, also, uh, go yeah, on. I, I, I would have I would have loved to have been able to work with uh, over Nick on something, and it got it got to be kind of a, a painful thing at the end of his you know before he passed away, um, because um, you know not to sort of shift gears dramatically, but uh, you know when you get artists of Nick's caliber, of Gene Colan's caliber, of yes. uh, Gil Kane's, and certainly Jack Kirby. Um, comics are not known for their kindness to their elder statesmen. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and guys like Jim Aparo, you know, yes. barely getting work. Uh, it, I found that in- incredibly insulting and heartbreaking. And, uh, um, you know, as a matter of fact, I even went to some of the editors and said, you know, you've got to get Nick on something because I want to, I want to, you know, selfishly, I want to work over him. And also selfishly, I feel like I want to see his work out there. You know, I understand. Um, of course, I, he he didn't make it, but uh, he passed away shortly thereafter. But wow. uh, anyway, no, I digress. I, no, not at all. All good digressions. Absolutely, man. And another name from the past I want to ask you about. Is this true? After art school, you went to DC Comics and you showed your portfolio to Vinnie Coletta? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. And he was actually, uh, um, you know, all I, and I got to know Vinnie much late, you know, much better uh you know, as much as you can know somebody with, with as colorful a, a history as he is, uh, as he had, um, I've actually visited him in New Jersey. Um, and he was he was a really, you know, colorful, I guess, is the best way to describe him that I can say in, you know, in a public forum. Um, but uh, really interesting guy. But he actually was really, um, really kind because in those days, I think it was 78, 80, I forget the year it was. Um, that I actually went to uh, to New York to sit in DC's uh, waiting room or lobby or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there were there were no um, you know like hoops you had to jump through to get uh, you know even get in. You didn't have to leave your driver's license. You didn't have to be <laughs> you know uh, frisked or um, you know or carded or give up your um, you know. Your, your firstborn to be able to get to get in. Um, I think what finally did it was he actually came, apparently he came in through the back entrance, you know, the uh, and um, which I which sounds perfectly comic booky when you think about it. All this, the, the comic places had these secret entrances that, you know, the editors and artists used. Um, all the, the stiffs have to come in through the regular channel. But I think um, the receptionist got tired of me watching her eat. Um, <laughs> So I think that may have been a factor. But, you know, she was just munching away on all kinds of you know, stuff. And I just sat there patiently waiting um, in my, you know, my petroleum-based clothing. You know, not, there was no, I think there was no, no natural fiber on anything that I was wearing. You know, total, total, you know. Polyester. Rube from, you know, oh, absolutely. Total rube from the, uh, from the sticks. Yeah. So you didn't have an, it was an you didn't have an interview. You 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 really went in and just kind of showed up. No, I all of my friends. I was in art school, uh, in New York School of Fine Industrial Art, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I was in my second year. 
and all of my friends were older um, uh, and were graduating. So I thought, well, let me just, you know, I, I love painting and illustration. I was really kind of getting into that world. Um, and like again, always loved comics, but I thought, well, maybe let's see if I can try to get a job or, or you know, or, or at least a critique or a pinup or cover or, uh, or something. Um, and then if I don't make it, I'll just go back and finish my third year of school and just keep, you know, working in terms of painting and illustration and, and see what happens. Cause I also wanted to do movie posters, um, and maybe even do some gallery work. But, um, so school was finished in May and then it, I took one month and put together maybe a 12 or 13 page portfolio of all DC characters. You know, obviously all the characters that Neil had done because by that time he was, um, so firmly implanted in my, uh, my ideal, uh, you know, artist, uh, position. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I went in, you know, I just took the train in, which was this old, you know, wicker seated, you know, monstrosity <laughs> out of New Jersey. Um, you know, the kind of seats that, that if you, you know, with the, where the wicker dries out and breaks off. So if you happen to be, you know, wearing shorts and you stand up, you look like your, you know, your, your thighs are, are woven out of, uh, out of hemp or something. <laughs> and, uh, so, and, you know, and all the windows, because I think every car was a smoking car then. Um, so every, uh, and I probably even, no, I didn't smoke then. I didn't smoke cigarettes. Then. So I, I was sitting and all the windows were this sort of, you know, mustard color. Sure. You know? Absolutely. Really, just, really absolutely disgusting. I mean, even the flies wouldn't, you know, wouldn't stay <laughs> in, that, in that room. I hear you, man. But, uh, but, but then when I got to, uh, that night, when I, when actually I, I got the, uh, the go ahead to actually work through various sort of chess and checker, you know, uh, you know, maneuvers of uh, leapfrogging and, and strange current, uh, uh, a string of events. Uh, the train I took back happened to be, for some reason, I don't know why, but it was a, a commuter train, which was this quiet, air conditioned, luxury, you know, uh, everybody's in suits and ties and read, you know, reading the New York Times. And I'm sitting in the, by the window and watching the sun go down, you know, as I'm going through Morristown on the way back up to Dover. And I'm going, you know, wow, it's like I came in on the wicker and I'm back. You know, it was like this. I had this mental sort of snapshot of, you know, how different things were. You know, like it was it felt like this big sea change, which in many respects, it absolutely was for me. That's awesome. So did he um, he led first of all. What made you turn around on Neil Adams' style? Because as you say, it, it kind of repelled you as a reader. So when did you kind of have it click where it's like, oh, no, this guy actually I think when, I, when he started to do some of the interiors. Um, okay. Uh, and I think it was, it was especially, I think it was his work on Batman, on Brave and Bold. Sure. And then also he, 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 when he was doing some of the, uh, I think he was doing the Green, uh, yeah. green Lantern, Green Arrow stuff. Yep. Um, and that's really kind of where it turned out. When, I, when he was started, when when the characters were uh, emoting, you know, and, and um, really expressing themselves, and he would capture nuances of uh, of expression. And um, I mean, as a reader, you know, I, I could obviously grasp the the intent of any artist uh, to you know to convey an emotion. You know, everybody from Salvi Sama to you know to uh, you know, Ernie Cologne, you know, at, sure. uh, you know, for Richie, Richie, Rich, you know, Absolutely. so, um, but when Neil was, when Neil was doing it, it really, um, lit a fire. It was just like, I had this, uh, epiphany, this, 
you know, may not have been a big one, may have been like a smaller, like an epiphanet or something, you know, just a <laughs> just tiny thing. And it, uh, it was like, oh, wow, okay, this is something, you know. And, uh, um, and I can't recall if it all happened in one, you know, one fell swoop or if it was something that kind of changed over time. But I literally, whatever switch did turn, I went from, you know, hating it to not being able to get enough of it. And, um, uh, you know, and that was sort of the, the, the fire that was lit you know, under me. Um, and, uh, and from that point on, all through my teens, um, I, you know, I studied Bridgman and Victor Perard, you know, with anatomy, reading my mother's medical books cool. to, you know, study anatomy, which of course didn't really work for anatomy purposes, but it certainly, you know, gave me a, a lifetime supply of, of hypochondriacal subject matter. Um, and, uh, and then, uh, you know, and then just studying anatomy and, and really sort of studying Neil's work. So, uh, and growing up on a farm in Northern Jersey, there were no other kids who were into comics. So there was no adult or no other fan or friend there going, you know, you really should do your own style. You know, it was like, to me, um, and I've said this before, that Neil's work kind of saved my, my life. Uh, I mean, it gave me something to obsess about and to sort of focus on to try to, you know, get away from a lot of the uh, sort of the teenage angst, but also what was specific to my own life at the time, you know, growing where I grew up and, and um, uh, you know, things that I was ex- exposed to. So, um, th- you know, there's there's other ways you can you can sort of uh, obsess. But for me, that was uh, the, the thing I put all my focus in. That's great. I man. wanted to be as good as, as good as this guy. That's great. You know, I did a, I did an interview with Mike Oming and he kind of said the same thing about his beginnings and that comics really was this escape and really gave him something to shoot for and everything when he, you know, was kind of in a tough personal position and stuff in his, in, in, in his childhood. Sure. So it, well, I think, uh, you know, I, I think, I think, I'm sorry. No, no, no. You continue, please. Well, I was going to say, I think that that's kind of a, of a standard, uh, you know, that's not as much of an anomaly as, as one might think. I mean, I, um, you know, my, like my buddies, like Paul Pope, um, uh, you know, we, we, we got, we've got to know each other real well. It's like, we've got, we have a lot, you know, we're brothers from other mothers, you know, sure. and the, you know, the idea of a lot of the stuff that drove him were exactly the same things that, that drove me. And, um, uh, uh, you know, so it's, it's a very interesting calling. Um, but I do think it has to do with, cause I, I also loved acting and I love sports. And I also love guitar, but, um, I think when I, uh, when I was a teenager, I also started to get, you know, even though I lost some weight, started to work out, I was always sort of self-conscious about my, my appearance and, you know, sort of became a lot more um, introverted. So I, I like to observe and stuff. So the idea of going out and playing guitar or, or uh, playing sports um, became less appealing or a little bit more like I was splitting the... Um, you know, the, the master, you know, you can only serve one. Okay. So art for me was, was the one that won out. Um, and, uh, and it actually, you know, in, in some respects, it certainly served me really well because, um, uh, you know, as a, as a heavy kid, you know, I used to get picked on and bullied and stuff, but, um, I happened to befriend this really huge guy whose nickname was Tiny, so you can pretty much, you know, <laughs> sure. use your visual. You know, it's like that says it all. 
and um, uh, and it was almost like having a bodyguard. You know, this this you know people would other guys would sort of uh, pick on me and sort of bully me and stuff, and uh, Tiny would sort of swoop in because uh, you know he and I got along great, and he also happened to love what I, my comics and and artwork that I was drawing. Wow. So it was uh, you know it was it was kind of a you know nice to have a a big bodyguard. I mean, it felt like something out of the comics to actually have him around. <laughs> I could see that. Absolutely. So did Vinny introduce you to Neil Adams? Um, he called Neil. Um, and uh, Neil said, send him over. And I think it was Tony Despoto, who happened to be at the offices as well, um, walked walked me over to Continuity. Okay. So I went from D.C. And Vinny said, you know, I love your work. Um, I could give you work, but in six weeks, you'll be out on the street. This was during that implosion, that, that big DC implosion, which I've never quite been able to sort of grasp exactly what it was, but it just sort of meant for me and for what he was saying that artists would, would, you know, be out looking for work. They wouldn't, they wouldn't have any kind of regular gig. Yeah. They were, so, pulling, they were pulling back the line and yeah, I mean, it's, it's out okay. there for people who are listening. They can get a more description and everything, but yeah, DC really cut back its titles after, you know, going into fantasy and the shadow and, uh, interesting mystery comics and suspense right. and Westerns and everything. And all of a sudden they pulled back in like 78 or 79. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. I guess that, yeah. And, uh, um, you know, all I knew was that, um, uh, you know, he thought I was good enough and, you know, and, and, That's awesome. uh, so sent me over to Neil. So I went from, you know, not knowing, uh, you know, not knowing Neil at all to like, so, and to go getting into DC being, you know, given a really wonderful sort of referral by Vinny. Um, and then, uh, went over to continuity and, um, that was quite another, you know, it was like, here I am, I'm meeting my idol, you know? So, uh, yeah. And um, so he he invited me into like the the main room, and I think Alan Weiss was there, and I forget who else, but because uh, I remember Alan Weiss specifically because he made a comment about my my Eiffel Tower tie. I think he was uh, you know I, I can still I can still see this. He was incredibly friendly, but I can still see the smirk on his face. You know, I mean here he's he's like this total New Yorker talking to Lil Abner, um, but uh, but everybody sort of, you know, went, like sort of swooped in around Neil and around me. And, um, as Neil looked through the portfolio and, uh, um, you know, and it was, it was kind of magical. I, you know, it was my experience, but I look at it now in terms of any kind of experience that other people might have. And I realized just, um, uh, you know, it was sort of the Hitchcock thing of a clear horizon. It just was like, wow, this is like, you know, not exactly blessed or blessed in a secular manner. You know, it was like, holy, you know, this is just too surreal for words. That's awesome. It's all laid out for you. Yeah, man. So. Well, yeah. And then he, then he called up, um, uh, you know, he, um, he looked at one drawing of Superman and I, and he said, I had done and he said, it's interesting what defines the style is not what we do right, but our mistakes. And I, and that always stayed with me. You know, he was sort of teaching uh, school, uh, giving a lesson to all the people who are sort of around us. Cool. Um, and then he called up Shooter, and uh, you know he said, "There's a, a guy here uh, I want you to look at. Uh, only problem is he draws like me." And uh, so I went from there over to to 
Marvel with an entire portfolio of Batman and Green Lantern, Green Arrow, Wonder Woman, you know, all the, you know, the Penguin, the Joker, <laughs> you name it. And uh, Shooter said, you know, the costumes don't matter. It's obvious you can do that. Um, but uh, I can give you as much work as you want. You just have to sign a uh, work for hire agreement, which at the time was like, you know, you know, you bet I'll sign, sure. you know, I'll sure. sign anything, you know, and it's not until much later that you realize that work for hire is sort of the worst, <laughs> not the, not the, uh, uh, the open door that you think it is, but, uh, but it was, it was pretty amazing. And then they offered me this character Moon Knight. I think they, they offered me Moon Knight because I think they were trying to think on their feet. It was like, let's give this kid something that's like Batman. And Moon Knight was nothing like Batman, but I think they sort of felt like, Maybe we could do something with it. Um, and they, they, uh, I'd never heard of Moon Knight at all. Huh. Um, and, uh, and it was weird because I had to, I was of two minds. I was really feeling incredibly fortunate and like, oh, shucks and golly gee, and this is great. And also a little bit miffed. It's like, they want to give me work. That's great. But they want to give me Moon Knight. Why aren't they giving me the Hulk? It was a sense of entitlement <laughs> and complete, uh, you know, like, gosh gee thanks you know this is great so uh you know that that you know sort of anomaly and that sort of contradiction i think still exists you know <laughs> i'm nothing i'm great you know it's that kind of, i think every artist has a version of that you know, you know I, I was do anything i can't i don't can't do anything I, I was reading that black and white hulk magazine where yours and doug munch's moon knight uh series <laughs> series was in and frankly, mm-hmm. you it did change on you. It, it it reminded me you you brought to Moon Knight what I think Marshall Rogers brought to Batman in terms of the flowing cape, and you know that kind of uh, just that uh, an airy sensibility that you you believe this guy was swinging around the city in the same way that Batman did, but it just had more of a flourish to it. And I mean, there's a there is a big but, leap from the previous Moon Knight stories to your work on Moon Knight. I think that was also, I mean, uh, you know, Ralph Macchio and, and uh, Rick Marshall, who were the editors in the, in the Black and White magazine or the Full Color magazine. Um, I remember we had co- the conversations about that. You know, I mean, if we're going to do a character, with, you know, uh, I can't do the scallops, the, you know, the bat right, scallops, right. but I certainly could make the cape into a crescent. Um, <laughs> and so it, it gave me an opportunity to sort of uh, uh, present Moon Knight in a sort of a bat way. And I think yeah. even... The comics journal got in on it, and I think you know Neil. Uh, uh, I think I had Moon Knight pushing Batman out of the way, saying "out of the way, old timer." And Neil responded the next issue with Batman tripping up Moon Knight, um, <laughs> you know, with his batarang. That's outstanding. Yeah. And I remember too. Yeah. Um, the the Moon Knight comic when you were doing it, wasn't it in the specialty store? Wasn't it in the, in the direct market? Was there a direct market? Was that, that was the, that was the only, that was the, the big, uh, um, you know, change was, uh, the point or the big, uh, um, you know, reason it was, it was actually, you know, created was to, was to jump into the direct market. It was like the number one direct sales book. Yeah. Um, and, um, and again, I didn't, I didn't know what that meant because on one hand I was, you know, when I heard direct market it, and it was the highest, you know, selling book in that arena, I was also kind of uh, up seeing comics on the newsstand. So when I heard it was going to be on the newsstand, I was, 
you know, a little bit flummoxed. Like, uh, you know, what is this, what is this direct market of which you speak? You know? Um, so it was, it was quite a, a little bit of a, of a learning curve. And was, was, uh, Denny O'Neill, did he, was he your editor at some point? He, yeah, he became the editor when, when it actually became it, the direct sales book, when they took it out of the, um, uh, the, you know, the black and white or the Hulk behind, you know, the back part of the Hulk magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, Rick Marshall, I think Rick Marshall left, and I think they might have closed down um, the Hulk magazine. Mm-hmm. And then I think um, uh, Denny and R- Ralph became Denny's assistant. So there was a little a level of continuity with Ralph. Okay. Um, and, of course, getting to meet Denny as an, in an, as an editor, uh, in an editorial capacity when I was, you know, so enamored of his work growing up, um, it was, it was amazing. So, so Ralph, Ralph and I became real, really good friends. So in a lot of respects, I mean, you know, Denny was more than happy to let Ralph and I, um, talk about, you know, how things were going to proceed. Uh, cause we both had an affection for the character and then working with Doug, I think, uh, yes, please. Yes. um, you know, I think I met, uh, you know, I think I, I didn't serve Doug nearly as well as I probably could have. I think, uh, um, I think, you know, I think he was given instructions to sort of, you know, make, uh, make it, make the work idiot proof, you know, for me. And, uh, um, because I think, uh, you know, I think I really, um, uh, was not used to dealing with like that level of full, of full script. Um, and I realized that, you know, um, it became, uh, a little bit more of a, of a challenge for me because I wanted, I wanted some room to breathe. Sure. And, um, and I think that, you know, get, uh, Doug and I sort of had to have a, you know, some conversations all good, uh, about, um, you know, you know, giving me less, uh, I understand. But, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and also, yeah, that's, so he, you know, sort of cutting, cutting the, cutting our, you know, my teeth. Sure. Well, and further too, um, you know, cause you allude to it. So had you been working in a Marvel style and then when it, when, uh, when the book elevated or, or from the start, was it full script and slowly it led to, it was full, it was, it was full script. I mean, cause I, I, I was only working with Doug. I think Doug was my, like quote, my writer. And I was quote his artist, um, from the start all through the Hulk, you know, the, from the, from the very get go. And then I think up until the issue, like the issues in the twenties when I really started feeling um, like I wanted to be able to push things a lot more visually. And by that point, the Neil Adams clone uh, moniker had, had grown really tired and, and, and infuriating. I sort of felt invisible. Um, so I took a lot of the, the drawings that I put in my sketchbook, a lot of the things that I had learned in art school and a lot of my passion for, uh, you know, collage and, abstract expressionism and fashion and said this, you know, all the stuff that was on my sketchbook that my wife uh, and her friends and, you know, my friends would say, you can't do that in comics. Never felt like a particularly valid reason to do something or not do something. Um, So with that, um, especially with the, you know, the issue 26 uh, hit it, which was, which was the plot that I came up with about, uh, you know, let's not have a, a guy in a cape. Let's just have a guy who's, uh, an angry son of a bitch who, you know, the whole point of, of hit it for me was that you can take what life gives you and make, you know, lemon meringue pie or beat the shit out of it, everything, you know? <laughs> um, and, uh, and to me that was, you know, it was just simply a, more of a, uh, you know, a tell, a telling an emotional story as opposed to, you know, the villain of the month. 
And, um, and that's really when I clicked into the idea of connecting with how, how images make you feel and how images feel the sense of emotion, uh, you know, even trying to take what Neil had done by exaggerating the poses, um, you know, I wanted to even push things further. So if, uh, if someone was, was, you know, crazy or angry that, you know, it might get a little sort of swirly eyed cartoony, um, uh, you know, and break that mechanism of, uh, like realism, but with, uh, a little bit of Francis Bacon thrown in, you know, Interesting. uh, and, uh, and I, that was a, in a way that wasn't really actually a conscious thing. I just realized that, um, what I found interesting for me was I wanted to be good enough to be able to draw how things look, um, and do the, the job of illustrating, um, an image to be recognizable but also to do it in such a way uh, that it felt right. It felt like, it, like uh, you know, it wasn't just somebody angry or it wasn't just a drawing of a pretty woman. It was, it was you know, you know, maybe the pretty woman is going through, uh, you know, there's a, a subtext of a lot of uh, upset. So, you know, she's still hopefully attractive, but the method with, in which I drew her may have been like very, very bold and, and graphic and had an undercurrent or an emotional resonance that felt disturbing. You know, it wasn't lyrical. It was um, more forceful. Interesting. Uh, and that's what, I, that's what I realized, that that, that was kind of the thing that uh, sort of became the through line of everything I, 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 I do. It's more how things feel and the emotional qualities that sort of connect. Um, certainly that was the thing that was interesting to me. I hear you, man. I so was your work on New Mutants before your Daredevil work because um, I know and it's funny because you mentioned it earlier that you've had fans come up and say yeah when I first saw your style I didn't like it uh, because I remember mm-hmm. reading in Amazing Heroes the grief you were getting coming in New Mutants and truly right that's exactly where I read it too yeah <laughs> oh man yeah. and I and seriously I remember, I remember actually I remember calling you know, some of the writers and just sort of like, uh, getting into conversations about them, you know, uh, about their, their points of view. Um, I mean, to the extent that I really felt invisible or, or, you know, everything I had sort of set my childhood, uh, course upon in terms of wanting to, you know, uh, be this, you know, as good as an artist as Neil Adams was, um, to have that, sort of be um, poo-pooed and slammed and sort of turned into a negative felt very, very, uh, um, it was, it was a, you know, a, a real seismic shift for me emotionally. And it was hard for me to kind of grasp it, but it, it certainly actually, um, you know, the anger that I felt and the, the invisibility that I felt like I was, uh, um, you know, sort of becoming uh, immersed in uh, became a real uh uh, mechanism for change. I mean, it really catalyzed my my desire to to just let go. That's awesome. So, yeah, absolutely, uh, man. No, yeah. you trusted your you trusted your instincts and your talents. And the thing I remember, I think the first thing I saw of yours was the the Daredevil graphic novel you did with Frank Miller. Uh, and, right. And, and I, right. I know it was. I remember the plot. I don't remember the title. But and feel free to give me the title. Oh, that was uh, that was actually yeah. I think that was Love and War. Yes, that was actually done at the same time Electro Assassin came out. That was uh, oh. it was kind of a salt and pepper shaker, you know, of uh, uh, of a set. Okay. Um, 
but that came that came after the New Mutants. Okay. Um, and because uh, the New Mutants with Chris, that was when I really started. Uh, I was heavy into Hunter Thompson, heavy into cool. David Lynch. Uh, <laughs> cool. You know, I think the Dune, gra- the Dune graphic novel, sort of was uh, around the same time. And I was, you know, and I was also really getting into Tex Avery and a lot of the, uh, you know, animation kinds of, uh, ab- you know, abstractions. Interesting. And um, uh, yeah, I was kind of just cutting loose in terms of everything. It was, you know, sort of like even Kurt Schwitters or, uh, you know, Robert Rauschenberg mm-hmm. as another. You know, uh, you know, intersection with uh, with art and comics. I felt like comics could do anything, and I w- and I was going to be determined to prove it. You know, and they would they would they could they could handle anything. So I mean, that was the same reason that they allowed me to do the painted covers. I mean, I was really sort of very fortunate um, that I could like play with the uh, the painted covers and do illustrative kinds of ideas with, uh, say, you know, the, the Dazzler, sure, or with the new uh, the new mutants. Um, so, uh, well, uh, well, that's the so by the time I was doing the interior paintings, because it became this this sort of stepping stone progression for me. It was like us, you know, coming in and doing Moon Knight, and then getting more abstract. Yes, as Moon Knight progressed, and then and then they're saying, you know, getting sort of feeling I had said everything I wanted to say with that character. Okay, I'm gonna jump. I, I don't want to do any other series. I turned down the X Men. Chris Claremont came up to me in the hallway and, and offered me a. a Three pay, a three issue uh, demon bear story, and uh, when he presented it to me in terms of an opportunity to just kind of do dream logic, you know, dreamscapes, mm-hmm. and sort of just run loose, I was like, I'm in. And Chris and I had so much fun. We said, let's just let's just keep this going, and we did. And then uh, it went from okay, now I've done all this sort of crazy stuff with the black and white and painted covers. I think the next step is I want to do fully painted interiors because that's an avenue that hasn't been explored either. Yeah. And I felt like there's so much more I want to say um, on the interior art that is not just, you know, done with pen and ink, but I wanted to, you know, push uh, with collage and with, uh, you know, even on Electra, there were some panels where she was kind of going to pieces, literally where I would yes. do a drawing <laughs> or a painting, cut the piece up with scissors and then sew the, the panel back to the, uh, you know, to the paper. Wow. Even though it wouldn't really show up, but it was, it felt like this is what I have to do. You know, I love hearing stuff like that. It's like when I've talked to Howard Chaikin about his use of sound effects and how he was sitting there with the, the, uh, Zip, uh, Zippo, uh, I forget what it's called. You know, these are artist tools, obviously. Oh, Zippotone? Yeah, Zippotone. Oh, wait, Zippotone you mean? Yeah, Yeah. and just like layering those sound effects on top and stuff, and that you physically would have to paste this stuff in the panel, and that's what it sounds like with what you're describing in it. Yeah, it was a very, yeah, it was a very kind of labor intensive. It was a very physical act, um, you know, of immersion. It's, 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 uh, you know, with digital stuff, it's a lot, there's a, it's, it's, there's a level of, of, uh, clinical, you know, uh, quality you know there's there's a there's kind of it's almost it's a little antiseptic in a lot of ways uh and i realized that i love getting my hands you know dirty um you know and i mean i think if uh uh whenever i pass away uh off the mortal coil i mean they're gonna just uh, you know prop me up in the corner because i'm i'm probably like 70 percent polymer at this point anyway um <laughs> I bet you but, and uh, I bet you and David. Yeah, I mean, Chaikin. Yeah, you know, Chaikin was a. You know, again, I uh, um, when I had my studio in New York City with uh, Dennis Cowan and with Michael Davis, um, wow. Chaikin and Simonson 
Um, I think Frank, by that point, had, had moved out. But uh, Jim Sherman was in there. Uh, you know, we did advertising work. And um, so having, you know, Howard ne- right next door, you know, Howard and I would, would have very interesting sort of uh, uh, disagreements or discussions or, you know, competitions about approaches for things. And, um, you know, I think people really need to know that when he was doing those graphic novels like Stars My Destination, um, you know, he was a major inspiration for me to do uh, painted stuff. That's great. Uh, you know, he never did it in the, you know, in comic books, but he did it in graphic novels. Um, so I just sort of felt like, uh, um, uh, you know, what he what he was trying to do. Uh, and our, our, we had a, a, a very much a shared love of, of illustration, um, uh, even though I think he still feels that, that my work lacks uh, structure. Um, but uh, that's uh, that's uh, that's uh, our running joke between us. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I would love to see your adaptation of Dune. I, forgive me. I don't remember it. And I bet it's amazing given your impressionistic style. So. I mean, that seems like a marriage. Well, it was, it, you, you know, know. I, I love doing it. It was, it was uh, you know, it, it's, uh, I'm very proud of it. Um, you know, I really had a great time. I was very much into David Lynch. Um, I love Dune as, you know, uh, or Herbert's Dune. And I, mm-hmm. and I also love the illustrations that John Shoner had done for the, the paperbacks. So, yes. um, uh, so I felt it was, a, you know, an idea that I wanted to, uh, to run with. The only thing about doing movie adaptations is that they're, notoriously uh, thankless I'm in hip. terms of, uh, uh, you know, doing them because uh, like doing a, the adaptation of, you know, Batman and having to have the Joker look like Jack Nicholson or, uh, um, you know, or doing a, an adaptation of Superman and, and having to show the wires that hold, hold the actor up, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, it's like, you can look, you can do anything in comic. We don't have to, I don't have to do the cast running across the, um, you know, of the film running across the studio in Mexico, I can actually draw, you know, all the Fremen, you know, like we need. Of course, they do that all digitally now. But at the time, uh, you know, it became a negotiation with uh, between the editor, Bob Budiansky and myself and uh, Universal. Um, whenever I would uh, give uh, Kenneth McMillan, who played ba- uh, Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, I gave him too many pustules and they said, no, he's only got them on one side of his face and you're making him too heavy. So I would say, all right, I'll, I'll remove, you know, 40, 40 of his pustules. If, he, if you'll allow me to exaggerate his weight by about 400 pounds. Cause he's, you know, he's basically a, a blimp, you know, the floating fat man. And, um, so, uh, you know, again, so that's part of what made it fun for me was I didn't, I, I wanted to do, not just Dune the movie adaptation, but Dune a visual, you know, presentation of it, called you know, culling bits from the actual Herbert novel, plus uh, you know, in terms of his descriptions of characters and also of um, you know other art forms that sort of had pay, paid homage to uh, uh, and uh, to and had sort of inspired and added to the uh, you know the pantheon of Dune. So I just felt like I was trying to do my version of that. And I, you know, again, as a, then later when I did Moby Dick, you know, I tried to do kind of a similar tone poem thing. Wow. To sort of add something to it and not just illustrate it, but to, you know, give it, um, uh, you know, plus the, that old expression about trying to plus it, you know, plus something, sure. not bring something to it and not just simply, uh, um, you know, you know, do a, 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 
you know, a boilerplate job. I understand. I uh, no, I I, w- I would love to go back and, and see that. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to find that somewhere. Um, I, I well, I think I just yeah, I I, had, I didn't have any copies of Dune, but I actually I think I went on you uh, not YouTube, I'm sorry, uh, eBay, and I think uh, a couple of other sort of old bookstores, and um, uh, it, you know, it's very strange when when you find like older issues of something that are out of print. And finding, you know, like work that was maybe three or four bucks when it came out uh, in mint condition is like three, two or three hundred dollars. It's 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 very surreal, you know. It's like, look, I just I just want a copy for my files, you know. I don't sure. care if it's falling apart, you know. <laughs> I understand. Are are you able to look at your old work, or is it like, oh God, look at all the, you know, do do or do you see all the flaws? Um, or or well, I you... see enough of it sort of at shows when I'm signing. Sure, of course. You know, so I kind of am reminded of. Uh, um, you know, some pieces and, and my disdain for some pieces I've done is sort of like uh, I'm used to it. It's almost like I can't get the, uh, the same level of worked up when I see something. It's like when I first would see pieces that I didn't like, um, you know, pieces that I didn't even sign when I did them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when people bring them for me to sign, you know, I'd be like, oh, God, okay, let me just sign it and get this over with. <laughs> and now it's just, it's, it's, it's again. It's that old brick in the wall thing. It's like okay, this, these are all bricks, and a couple of the bricks are broken and cracked and discolored. But uh, you know, obviously, if this person thinks enough of this piece to to want me to sign it, oh yeah, um, <laughs> you know, that's 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 totally fine. And I realize, you know, like anything else, you know, I might have a certain feeling about a piece of work, um, but once it's done and it's out there. Um, it's out of your hands. I mean, it's, you know, people are going to respond to it as they, as they will. And it may have nothing to do, absolutely zero to do with the intent behind the piece. Um, you know, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, dealing with uh, like what I imagine comedians go through, you know, it's like, you know, you, you can make an observation or a statement, but people think that you meant it. It's as opposed to a, uh, you know, just presenting a visual uh, alternative or something, you know, that might, might, uh, be an unusual way of looking at something. I hear you. They uh, they can sort of get, um, you know, did you mean to give the character a penis, you know, for a head? You know, it's like, <laughs> what? What are you talking about? You know? <laughs> I saw no penises in yeah. Love and War or Electra Assassin. And I think I saw yeah. Love and War. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, it's, you know, it's, uh, no, I mean, as, as actually, there's a, that's sort of like almost a running joke. I, that, there was a couple of times when I, I would do sketches just make, and, you know, somebody would say, uh, you know, this looks like this. I have no, certainly no desire or I, there was nothing I would, I brought to the table that would sort of make me want to do, uh, you know, anything out of the norm or to insult anybody. So it was like, I had to, I would literally have to look at the piece and go, I guess I could see how you could see that, but that wasn't what I meant, you know? And that, that sort of is something that happens when you do a piece of work, somebody brings their subjectivity to it. And I've learned to sort of, um, acknowledge that. I hear you, man. I, what I loved, you know, you mentioned before how you love how certain artists are able to really evoke raw emotion. The, I really got that in both love and war and also Electra assassin. And first in love and war, just that torment, of the kingpin, the the conceit of the story is Vanessa, his wife, has uh, gotten him to promise, okay, I'll give up crime by midnight, and he's like, all right, I got to I got to get rid of an uh, you know Daredevil before midnight or whatever because I've made this promise right. to a woman I love, and just the frustration and you know the one woman 
that can bring Wilson Fisk to his knees is Vanessa. And I just remember you had a great exactly. scene of him just screaming at her, Vanessa, and just, you know, big purple face just screaming at him and stuff. And it was awesome. You know, I it, it really was raw emotion. And, and again, this impressionistic style that, as I understand, it, it kind of at first turned off some New Mutant fans. I, I, I mean, to me, it really was. And I can understand it because you were coming off of Sal Buscema, who's a very Marvel House style, beautifully classic Marvel kind of style, you know, artist and everything. So it was a departure. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I think for oh, absolutely. But, yeah. but for Daredevil, it really was exciting. And, you know, I was already a, a fan of Frank's. And I truly think that might have been the first thing I saw of yours. And it, to me, it was just like, wow. This is like, and it's not a proper analogy, but maybe you'll think it is, but like kind of a Leroy Neiman almost a bit of a style or at least mm-hmm. that era and everything. Because I don't know, my, my father kind of grew up in that cocktail uh, generation and stuff post-World War II and really had this kind of neat impressionistic right. art at the house. And he had a restaurant and we had like uh, cityscapes that were kind of in that style. And that's what your stuff kind of reminded sure. me of. And it was so great to see that. In comics, and it really felt, along with the fact that the direct market kind of made comics a specialty art store kind of thing, versus something we got on the newsstand right next to Dennis the Menace and Richie Rich taking nothing away from those right. great things. But you know what I'm saying? It just felt more adult, and it was like, wow, this is cool. And again, I was in um, early college and everything, and I'm like, hey, this is awesome. This is this is what I want to read, man. This is great. Well, I think, uh, you know, thank you for that. And I, it's, it's interesting because when I, you know, I would see Frank up at the offices a lot. And, you know, I loved what he was doing on Daredevil and we really hit it off. And then um, uh, when he offered, he said, let's do, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a kingpin story for Daredevil. That was actually that graphic novel, the Love and War graphic novel, is actually going to be uh, issues, several issues of the, of the actual Daredevil comic. Sure. Um, it, was, it wasn't until Shooter saw the, the pages and said, you know, this is this is not going to happen because it's such a departure. But he was the one who suggested um, that we do it as a as a graphic novel because uh, Starlin's death of Captain Marvel, yes, really uh, sort of like set the you know the meter running in terms of um, you know being off to the races as graphic novels go. And so Frank said, let's do that, and then uh, let's also just do like a, a maybe an eight issue. Uh, Electro series kind of like as bread and butter while we're working on the big project, which is the graphic novel. So it kind of turned out that uh, they were sort of done simultaneously, okay. but, um, and, and kind of informed each other, but they're st- they still feel different. You know, they feel sort of maybe of the, of the same time, but um, you know, the Electra series is, is uh, there are things I did in Electra that I, that I would not have tried or wouldn't have worked in, in, um, uh, you know, in love and in love and war. Uh, certainly, the uh, you know the Ken Wind Xerox head kind of a thing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, it, I felt like maybe because it was sort of viewed as something Frank and I were doing to um, to augment the graphic novel. Um, it felt uh, like there wasn't this this great amount of weight put on it to have it be um, uh, you know precious. So. Uh, it was just a place, an avenue to play and just, uh, you know, kind of go wild. And, you know, and Frank also, you know, he was, uh, you know, he said, I, I think you just need to cut loose. And so Frank was, was an absolutely, uh, you know, 
one of the most amazing um, collaborators, you know, and inspirations to work with. Uh, well, everybody I've worked with has been that way, um, you know, for di- to different degrees and for different reasons. I mean, Chris, you know, Chris was, uh, you know, I can't say enough wonderful things about Chris. So, uh, you know, the mutants would not have been the mutants without Chris. And, you know, Chris's way of, of approaching a plot and uh, giving me the level of latitude that I, that I loved, um, uh, you know, that, that was really sort of the high point for me. Uh, you know, cause after working with Doug, um, you know, it was like, I kept feeling, uh, like, give me less, give me less, give me less. Um, cause I want to be able to run with it. And, uh, um, and I think that that's what, uh, what Chris sort of brought to it for me. I mean, he would give me a plot, you know, of maybe one, one page would equal one page of comics. And it'd be like, you know, four or five lines about the tone of the page and, you know, interaction, but there would be no panel descriptions, nothing. It was just, you know, uh, sort of a minimal setup. And then I could, I could tell the story the way I wanted to, like, let me know where you want me to start and where we need to get to, and I'll get you there. Don't worry about, you know, describing, you know, the interior of the cab ride. Sure. Sure. Well, that was, so it was a much more Marvel style, collaboration with Chris. Right. And yeah, we, I guess so. It's like, I, I, I never really thought of it as a Marvel style. Um, but I, yeah, now that you mention it, it's sort of like, yeah, I guess it was, it was, to me, it was just the way of, I work with Chris, you know? Okay. And with, um, with Frank, was it, was it, you say that you, Frank said too, it was time to cut loose. Did he allow you that same kind of freedom? Oh, good Lord. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we, we would push each other, uh, like crazy. Um, I mean, there were many times when, when I was back on the East Coast and Frank was in L.A. and I would come out to visit, I can still remember, you know, staying with Frank um, and just we would just be having these these meltdown kind of like hysterically funny conversations about, uh, you know, drawings and, and uh, of Garrett. Um, yes. And just, <clears throat> you know, running with the stuff in such a, an extreme way that it was just uh the the sort of absurdity of uh, of what we were proposing um you know it was it was just so much fun and it kind of it kind of informed everything you did like nothing nothing was sacred so uh well the, the uh, amount of frank was you you know usually frank, no you go ahead frank was usually what well he was you know he was usually you know as much of a co-conspirator you know, um, uh, as, as I was. And, and again, I think that, you know, Chris and I did the same thing, um, with the mutants, like we were trying to push things. Um, but that was like, uh, sort of within the Marvel framework, I think because Electra and, uh, uh, was, was for more for Epic. Um, yes, we sort of didn't have to really kind of play as nicely within the framework of Marvel comics. We could sort of even go further which is, you know, something I did with, uh, with like straight toasters. Absolutely. Afterward. It was, you know, like what, what can this, this, what can this medium, uh, take, you know, uh, how far can you bend it and break it even before it breaks and all that stuff. Sort of the, the, uh, you know, Alan Alda, uh, line from what, that Woody Allen movie I'm trying blanking on right now. Crimes and you misdemeanors. Know, if it bends, yeah. Cri- yeah. If it bends, it's funny. If it breaks, you know, whatever. It's like that kind of a, <laughs> 
Well, I want that's how I view the comics. I hear you, Matt. I want to before we leave Electra Assassin. I'm interested in Ken Win because um, it was Gary Hart, the presidential candidate of '84, that unfortunately ended in scandal. Like, was he in your mind in terms of a model for Ken Win? Because um, it's funny. no, actually, go ahead. No, actually, he wasn't. Um, I think I started really getting into the politics of, of things uh, when I started doing Brought to Light later and, okay. the, tra- and the trading cards, like Without the Tony Dictators. Yes, uh, Up until then, I, I think I was, I was marginally liberal, uh, even though I'd grown up in a very conservative household. Um, uh, I realized that a lot of uh, the things I innately believed in were much more uh, progressive, uh, you know, in, in terms of uh, equity and equality. Absolutely. But um, – and, and fairness. And I think um, when I did Ken Wind, uh, I think I was just trying to find uh, – there may have been an idea of thinking of the, you know, this sort of uh, Camelot aspect of Kennedy, you know, the, young, the youngest president at the time. Absolutely. Um, I, think, yeah, I think, yes, I don't know if he still is, but, uh, but I do know that um, I tried to find uh, uh, you know, a, a suitable model. And I just, I think I just went into like catalogs, you know, and found like male models who were, you know, okay. uh, like in, in Sears or something. Sure. Just sort of these sort of boilerplate, insipid, sort of non-threatening, um, you know, figures. And then I just, I, you know, I just Xeroxed the like the smiling, you know, faces uh, until they completely were distressed and almost unrecognizable. Mm-hmm. And then I. Put a, I cobbled together one or two of them and put the mouth of one on the head of another and made it slightly off center. Sure. So it added a little a little level of creepiness to it. And then I thought that most politicians, you know, have the sort of uh, like smiling, uh, you know, it's a new day in America, a baby kissing, oh, you yeah. know, like vote for me. And then the sort of, you know, this aggression will not stand sort of stern face. And so I, I really thought that it became a binary, you know, it's either smiling or somebody or this, or this space that's not uh, smiling at all, just sort of stern. And from that, um, it just it just sort of opened up uh, in terms of how to approach it. Um, and then when I decided, because I was going to use those images for the um, like advertisements or the or the you know the the political ad, ads in the, in the you know like. The, the posters that might come up sure. in the series. And then I realized that a- after doing that, I thought, well, maybe I can just put that head on, on the figure and uh, <laughs> it will save me the trouble of, of coming up with a model for the character. And also I think it feels more like a politician. Absolutely. You know, like, like this guy's just a mask. So it, uh, when I, once I, once I did the figure and I decided I wasn't going to do the head and I dropped that Xerox head in there, it just, it was like, boom, this is, this is it. This, you know, it was just like, okay, I think I found, I found the solution. And, um, uh, it ended up again, saying way more than if I had actually gone out and hired a, an actual model. That's awesome, man. No, it, it definitely came through and it did. It, it played well with the satire of, you know, kind of manufactured political candidate like that. No, it was great. John Garrett, uh, the shield agent in Electra assassin, um, was it always your guys' intent to have a different Shield agent as opposed to maybe Nick Fury being being uh, a character? Because oh yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, because we wanted we wanted somebody 
who would end up as Electra's, you know, bitch. And, you know, it's sort of like uh, <laughs> his punching bag. Um, so, uh, which he totally became, yeah. you know. And he was only, I think he was only, he was supposed to die at the end of, uh, I think he was going to be kind of a placeholder. Maybe Nick was going to come in later. But I think he was slated to die at the end of the second issue. And I think, uh, again, when Frank and I would, would do it, we just had so much fun with it. It was like, let's let's just go with it. And then bringing Perry, you know, the ultimate asshole, um, uh, you know, in terms of uh, uh, a character and having him come back uh, at the end of the series. Um, it, you know, it all, it, it all, it, it just dovetailed all just so perfectly. Um, you know, it was a really kind of a amazing, amazing experience. The, honestly, uh, man, you guys were, uh, it, it was so great. Cause you know, people immediately think of 86 and they think of Watchmen, they think of dark Knight, they think of mouse. And it's like, yeah, don't forget Electra assassin because that really was, right there in the, you know, part of the zeitgeist of what was going on and really stretching comics yeah, oh, in places that, was a, that they hadn't gone yeah. before. Yeah. Well, that was a, that was a really, you know, fertile year for, you know, for the, the medium. I mean, I even remember talking about it with Alan and Frank and, you know, Chris and everybody. It was like, this is, uh, um, this is a really special time. We sort of felt the potential and the possibility of the medium and, uh, uh, I mean, it, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm incredibly proud of Electra Assassin and also of Love and War. But at the same time, it's like I'm aware that maybe in any other year it might have been like the top, you know, the top one. But there was so much that came out in 86. It's like the fact that it's like, oh, yeah, don't don't forget about this one. You know, yeah, it's, uh, um, you know, that 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 year, you know, it's sort of like 68, you know, 1968 yes. in terms of the, you know, it had a, a similar kind of zeitgeist you know, uh, kick. No question, man. No, this is, that's the thing. And I, and you know, we, we talked about this before we started recording. Um, you, you really have experienced two really big, or at least they you know, are part of the, the comic scene when these two big, really sea changes are happening back in the mid eighties, when all that was going on, that led to a, a couple more things that I wanted to ask you about before we wrap up, especially your work with Alan Moore. But then also to see what's going on today and, um, you know, create our own stuff. And I would imagine your guys' success with Epic, with Marvel, uh, you know, kind of made you guys think, all right. And, and that was the time when people were kind of experimenting with creator-owned. And we had the, the black and white explosion where, you know, everyone could really try and, and put out a book. And, and some people, you know, a lot of people actually had decent success, again, because of the direct market. So... Uh, right. You know, yeah. You know, can you can you compare those two eras of of then and today? Well, I know that you know when I would talk to Dave Sim um, about you know doing creator own stuff, mm-hmm. um, um, you know, I'm, he was like constantly talking to me about it, and I was really intrigued by it. But at the same time, I sort of felt like I was having so much fun, sort of enjoying and playing with all the toys sure. from the, the companies, you know. Um, so finally, when I, I dove in with, with uh, toasters, that was like, uh, you know, I loved that idea. Although it, in, you know, it took so much out of me to tell that story. I mean, it was just like I lived, breathed, ate. You know, I, I, that's why I started living in my studio. Wow. You know, it uh, it really was like a, um, uh, I didn't I didn't skate along the surface. Let's put it that way. Um, and I think that, um, uh, you know, doing working on now on some of my own creator own stuff, I've got sort of things percolating 
uh, of my own. But Great. the one thing, you know, working with with uh, Kelly Sue DeConnick, um, you know, uh, hopefully she'll still talk to me because I, I, like I've been so I've been so behind and sort of like trying to like get to this project because this like uh, um, I'm bringing to it the same kind of questions and and um, the ability to sort of run with it and open things up and like how do you push this uh you know th- this story because it's such an amazing story that she's written it's like wanting to bring another level to it so i look at create her own work as kind of a um a wonderful place to uh to push and really be um unique and be a, a very much a singular voice uh you know and that's something i find uh is really more and more, uh, you know, on on display with the with the the wealth of of um, personal creator owned work. Um, it's uh, it feels less uh, manufactured, and uh, and I think especially like when you know when you're dealing with you know with say the big two with the Marvels and the DCs, uh, you know, and the and the, the spate of of all uh, of all the superhero movies. I think um, uh, in some respects, film has sort of supplanted what comics were, uh, especially with the, the advent of, uh, and the expertise and ability that you can work with digital. Um, you know, back in the day, you know, you had a Jack Kirby double page spread of, you know, Asgard versus the, you know, like ogres and, or whatever. Sure. And you, you know, he would draw the entire group. I mean, now, I mean, being, that was cost prohibitive, you know, um, in the past, but now with digital, um, you can pretty much envision anything. And uh, so I think comics uh, have sort of become uh, supplanted by the digital capabilities of film. Um, and maybe in some respects, the superheroes are sort of, you know, viewed, um, superhero movies are sort of viewed with a little bit of the same kind of cultural, uh, not contempt exactly, but sort of uh, um, uh, tolerance that comics were, you know, once had. And I think that comics um, are becoming more of a, of an author and a, uh, you know, an auteur arena and also a place for much more of a personal vision Um, because you still, you know, comics, you still can create something and, you know, one person or two people or, or a handful of people, uh, you don't need to run it by committee, you know? And uh, so, uh, you know, it's it's a really interesting uh, time more than it was even then, um, because I think the respect uh, of the medium has grown, um, and, and that's not just because they, you know, you can take a comic book and have it made into a, a you know a, a long form TV series or you know a film. Um, the cross pollination is is you know is pretty pervasive now. Like all mediums are sort of you know part and parcel of each other yes um but uh so the idea of doing something creator owned it's it's uh uh it doesn't have the same kind of uh uh sort of separateness or sense of uh uh of it being an anomaly as it used to uh, at, the, at that point, it was almost like, you know, you look at Wendy Peeney's, you know, ElfQuest. Yes. Which sort of, you know, we became like creator own. And like, you know, and, and it, that usually had like was a huge Klieg light that it was it was like not Marvel, not DC. You know, it was like uh, now um, uh, creator owned is just simply like that, you know, it's 
it's your it's the, that person's own own unique vision it's uh it's more of a positive as opposed to it's not this it's this it's you know it's it's uh um you know it, it's their own uh vision for, for for and their own story and there's no level of um you know dismissive uh um you know, response to it, like, like there might've been, it's, it's sort of like, you know, telling people that, uh, you know, no, no, creator on comics are, you know, they're like, uh, they're like broccoli, you know, you'll like it, really, you will, you know? <laughs> no, you're right. And it's, been... it's almost like, I think, I think, I think people are responding to it as, uh, um, as a breath of fresh air it's, or, or dessert. It's like, yeah, no, it's, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's apple pie, you know, like, I love this. It's like more people are, are preferring to see creator own work Absolutely. because that's where the most interesting work is being done. Yeah. And they're bringing it again. It's not, yeah, it's not like they're trying to, um, uh, you know, modulate or to, to change, uh, a license or a property, you know, about, well, God, well, how's this going to affect our ride, you know, or our, our, uh, our theme park. Right. Like we're about just doing a really freaking great story. Well, yeah. You know, with some interesting characters. Well, that's the thing. And I think when DC and Marvel try to emulate what's happening in the creator-owned arena, they can't because of their – I mean, it's like let Batman be Batman. Let Superman be Superman. People will get the fix they're looking for from these creator-owned books. They're not looking for that in Batman and Superman I and, and the Marvel characters. I said that in a, in not a mean way. But they're like the fast food of comics where it's like, no, sometimes you want a Whopper. So you're going to go to Burger King. You're not going for a steak meal at Burger King. And they can offer steak, but it's like, well, yeah. you know, it's like I came I came to watch Superman crash through the wall, untie Lois, have the bullets bounce off of his chest from the gangsters and clunk their heads and send right. them off. To, it's like, you know, the, or, or rescue right. the girl from the train tracks. It's like, yeah, we, we, you know, it's, you know, variations on the same theme, whereas... You know, again, in the creator own thing, yeah, it's its own thing, and it's like that's great. You know, and they're both. Well, great. it's like I look at. Yeah, I almost feel like like the the, the terminology is even going to change even more. Uh, like the idea of creator own comics, I think is going to be just simply comics as opposed to product. Yes, um, because the companies are are not looking at you know Marvel again. Marvel and DC is sort of like maybe the two biggest sure. um, uh, purveyors of it. Um, there, that's just that's licensing. I mean, it, the, the comics are research for development. The comics might as well, just as well, be uh, a Happy Meal or a, or a Slurpee yeah. cup. You know, yes. Um, it, it's they're not comics, they're, and the, the publishers, the you know, Warner's and, and Marvel are not necessarily publishers. I think those are simply kind of almost the publishing aspect is law. They're like lost leaders. I yes. mean, it's sort of like whereas. The real true comics about what the medium is. I don't think that the that the companies, those big companies, I don't think they actually quote you know give one shit about um, <laughs> comics. You know they're you know and I'm not saying that that sounds a lot more aggressive and angry than maybe it is. Um, uh, but but because they're not in the business of uh, you know comics, that they're they're in the business of licensing and product right. and selling you know and and. And other things. So for me, the idea of um, you know comics, you know, and creator-owned comics, the you know those two terms feel like they're much more uh, uh, honest about what the, the you know the potential of the true medium of what comics 
as an art form can be and what it can accomplish. And that's something I've always felt. So, um, uh, you know, the days of doing something innovative, you know, in, at Marvel and DC, um, you know, I, I don't know if those are um, the arenas for it. I understand what you're saying. I completely Can't agree. Completely agree. Back to your style and the choice to go to painting for the interiors. Did it take longer to 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 approach art that way, or because you kind of had the ideas? Yeah, it, well, yeah it tell did. us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it did, uh, but at the same time, um, you know, being young and 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 like incredibly focused on wanting to do that, uh, there was no painted page rate when I when I offered when I wanted, told them I wanted to paint the interiors of a of Electra Assassin or the uh, the graphic novel of uh, Love and War. I'm trying to remember if there was a separate um, special rate for the graphic novel. So maybe I got a little bit more, but for the comic, even though it was done for Epic, it was technically a, a comic book. And I think there was only, I think a $40 page rate for, which was sort of a standard comic book coloring, you know, the Y2BK three or whatever, you know, the sort of, um, you know, the laying out the sort of with Dr. Martin's guys and sort of giving the color guides. Interesting. That was the only rate that they had. So I ended up, saying i'll take it you know um i didn't even sort of fight for it i just said you know that's fine because i just needed to to do it i needed to you know not wake up one morning and go i really wish i'd done you know painting it's like you know it was like i just had to dive in there was really just no choice in the matter um and i was going to do it no matter what um what the prohibition or, or even what the the income possibilities were um and uh, so it may have taken you know, a little bit longer but, um, uh, than the inking, but in other ways, it kind of went fast. I mean, there were points when I was doing like three pages of painted stuff a day, partly because I was cutting, you know, cutting and pasting and, and um, doing some uh, maybe collage. But, uh, but I did get pretty fast at it. And, uh, um, you know, plus, I don't think I had a, I don't think I quote, had a life, you know. Because that, that that became my life, uh, just diving into it. So no, and I understand from an art standpoint the, that compulsion that you have to do it. There's no choice. So I get that. Right. You know, right. I loved your. Yeah. I, it was only six issues that you were on the book. I loved your collaboration with Andrew Helfer on the Shadow. It really was. I'm a, I, I really grew up on the radio show, and then loved uh, when they reprinted the Gibson books with the Storenko covers. Oh yeah. You know, so I was really such a shadow and loved Howard's mini series. I was not so much of a purist that I didn't appreciate what Howard did. And then you come with your impressionistic mm-hmm. style, which really fit the shadow. I mean, it really added to you the know, surrealism he, he was... and the invisibility and him appearing out of nowhere. It, it just had that right vibe. Well, thanks. It's like, you know, I, I, I don't have this quite a, you know, a, uh, beneficent sort of response to my time on the shadow is as, 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 you know, as you so kindly have, um, I sort of look at it as, um, uh, like a gig that I ended up doing as uh, a chance to do inking because, um, Interesting. Uh, because when I, it was after I had done Electra and they were DC really, you know, came to me and they said, we really want you to do the shadow. And they told me they, they was going to be following what Shaken had done. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, Although, you know, I really, I, I enjoyed what, what Howard had done. I was kind of like, I wanted to sort of not run with what Howard had done. I wanted to do my take on the original, 
you know, sort of, you know, so I, I was trying to do a little bit of, of a nod to what Howard had done with some of the characters, but also to really kind of uh, go throw back to that era of that, that pulp. Yeah. Um, you know, subvert that as opposed to trying to run with what Howard had done and subvert that as well. Cause I do think that there's a part of me that, that likes to mess with expectations. Like if people, <laughs> they don't know what they, they know when they like what they should expect from me is they, they don't know what to expect. Yeah. That's kind of how I, I, <laughs> I like to run with it. But um, after I signed the contract, they said, Oh, by the way, no, no painted stuff. It's like, we don't want to oh, see Jesus. what you did with lecture. So they, they had sort of slammed the door on, how to how I was wanted to approach sure. it, and I sort of felt like you know, uh, like I was sort of sold the bill of goods that that um, you know I was brought on board to uh, to sort of just be a set of hands. So I ended up turning the, that whole experience into kind of an ink, an exercise in inking and sort of trying different like pen pen styles and and layouts and and abstractions and ca- like cartooning and caricature. But in terms of um, you know what I had tried to do with with uh, straight toasters or with Electra mm-hmm. or with with um, uh, Love and War. There was none of that. It was it was it was simply a gig that I did for six issues. I hear you, man. You know, I mean, I'm proud of it. You know, and I thought I did some some okay stuff on it, but it wasn't where I felt. That was the first time I think I'd felt that it was not a step up. It was kind of a lateral if, and a semi, you know, one step back. I understand. Um, yeah. Wow. Well, tell me about your Alan Moore collaborations, if I might, here. Well, that was that was sort of like, you know, setting the bar incredibly high. I mean, working with him on Brought to Light was, was wonderful um, because, you know, the political uh, awareness that I developed and, and, again, pushing with the uh, – with the exaggerations and caricatures of, of all these really corrupt and disgusting political arenas. I mean, it was, it's a perfect, you know, doing artwork in a political arena, um, editorially, you know, or op-ed kind of thing. It's, uh, the fact that most, uh, editorial cartoonists or political cartoonists, uh, are the most brutal. Um, and I just love that so much. It's like, you know, the speaking, incredible truth to power yes and again to me that the, the fact that that's possible and then the idea that comics could do that um that was like a one-two punch um so when we decided that we would sort of keep our collaboration going with uh, with big numbers um after frank and i had worked with uh you know on electra and love and war uh i think you know it was almost like the four of us dave gibbons Alan, Frank, and myself you know, sort of like do si and switch partners. <laughs> and I think I really set up a really big expectation uh, of what I wanted to do with the series um, artistically and uh, in terms of magnitude and just workload. Um, so it, you know, it didn't, it didn't work out partly because uh, you know, the immensity of, of, uh, of the project uh, dealing with 45 different models um, you know, I've done I've done actually a, a video interview that's I think maybe coming out and they're 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 ostensibly going to be making a documentary about what happened to you know big numbers. Oh, that's uh, great! Um, at some point, yeah. So we'll see. If, you know, it's like uh, the, the the people who actually interviewed me. It's like I I haven't spoken to them in a while, but um, but the short the short you know version is that kind of 
what big numbers became, what, why it went off the rails is, uh, is, you know, the story was about chaos and about how, you know, but the, you know, the butterfly, the beating of the wings in, in Africa can sort of, you know, destroy, you know, the, the, you know, the Midwest or something, you know, mm-hmm. of, of the United States in terms of the Dust Bowl. So that, you know, small, small changes at the early part can cause huge sea changes, you know, um, later on. The kind of where you go from the inflection point where something just sort of switches to, you know, to a, a, a you know, one step forward, two steps back to something of, a, of an absolute incredible magnitude of, of destruction or positive, you know, one extreme or another. Um, and I realized that uh, the chaos that we were writing about or creating in terms of the, the story, all of those elements, real life breaking up with, you know, spouses, you know, death of, of people, uh, you know, not enough hours in a day, you know, all of those things, uh, the chaos of life became what ultimately did uh, uh, big numbers in. You know, it was, it was not, there was nothing glamorous about it. It was, it was simply the boring, you know, I mean, there were so, so many different stories that I'd heard about, you know, behind, you know, quote, truth behind the scenes about, uh, you know, um, you know, substance abuse and, you know, sort of like, you know, incredible sort of, you know, eyes wide shut parties and stuff, you know, or something to do with what, what caused big numbers to go sideways. Yes, I remember those stories. It was, Absolutely. No, it was, yeah, it was nothing, nothing like that. It was just simply, you know. It just chaos. It was chaos. Wow. You know? Um, and uh, so I suppose in a weird kind of a way, even though I, I would love to be able to finish it, I don't think that's ever going to happen. But at the same time, I sort of feel that um, the story of big numbers is actually, you know, the story in some respects of its, of its, uh, of its not happening, of its quote failure. Yeah, man. You know? No, that was like, that's your let it be. You know? I understand. You know, I mean, it's like yeah, these, you, you right. guys are such amazing talents and, you know, you managed to get two issues out and you didn't finish 1963, his work with Rick Veach. I, I you know, I remember mm-hmm. that series as well. Right. And that, it, you know, we never got the final, you know, issue of that. So, yeah, there's just some of these lost projects and stuff. Are you guys at all like. Are you not speaking? And forgive me for getting personal, but I'll ask the question anyway. No, we haven't. We haven't spoken. We haven't spoken in a while. I mean, like um, a friend of mine who interviewed Alan, you know, mentioned uh, Alan. You know, Alan, and you know, we haven't actually spoken face to face or on the phone or anything. But we, you know, we we correspond, pass messages back and forth to each other. I think Alan. Alan says he's sort of away from the whole kind of comics community right now. I think you know he's doing stuff with Melinda. And his own writing and stuff, but I think that Alan, I mean, we're everything is, you know, it's fine. We don't have much, you know, to do with each other, but he doesn't have much to do with uh, with people in comics much I anymore, anyway. No, I hear yeah. you, man. Um, well, I'm really looking forward. I, I you know, you, you, we've we've talked beyond our, our promised hour, and I and I don't want to keep you because I'm sure you got stuff to do. Unless you do want to keep going, it's up to you. No, I'd love to, but I unfortunately I'm, I'm totally. I'm, Quote, cleaning, cleaning my studio because uh, I'll be uh, speaking of Frank Miller. I'll be seeing him tomorrow. So that's uh, awesome. No, that's great. Yeah. And and really, man, uh, for the purposes of the podcast, we'll remind everyone again that Bill and I will continue the conversation in San Diego and welcome audience questions, not just about the New Mutants, and that's the focus of our panel. But uh, we're happy to talk more uh, and answer any questions that people may have. 
And you do have to come back, though, beyond the panel, because I am really interested in what you've been doing the last few years uh, and, and some of the inking collaborations you've done. I will ask real fast, because they announced Punisher End of Days. Are you part of the team for, for Punisher End of Days? I know um, you were. Yeah, uh, yeah, we're, that's something I'm, I'm supposed to be doing. Um, I, I think I, I, I think I've got pretty much the entirety of the art chores on that one. So, wow. um, it's, you know, it's going to be, uh, you know, of the, I don't even think Klaus is able to be a part of that. So, um, you know, there is some discussion about it, but we haven't sort of nailed anything down yet. Okay. So and that's, my, you. you know, my, my copious spare time. I understand. <laughs> I understand, but yeah, really, uh, Bendis and I have been talking about it a lot, uh, and I'm I'm glad to hear that you're still part of the team and really enjoyed uh, and the uh, Daredevil end of days and I, and it's and really also your work on uh, Ultimate Team Up with Brian when you were able to do oh, that was, uh, yeah that was a lot of fun I, oh love, my I God, love working yeah. with Brian yeah man. yeah no you and that's the thing and I'm really glad you and and David too because you guys have obviously a simpatico sensibility as far as art goes. And collage and, and how Absolutely. you guys approach it. Right. So, no, Absolutely. Well, Bill, we uh, as we're recording this, we'll continue the conversation next Wednesday at Comic-Con. It's uh, Thursday, 2.30, and I believe it's room 24ABC. That's where we'll be, and it's a New Mutants retrospective with Bill Sienkiewicz, and I am honored to be the moderator for that. I will be getting out of the way and asking questions and let Bill spin and then tell tell his great stories about working with the new mutants. But uh, truly, man, a pleasure talking to you today. Same here. And uh, and yeah, man, we'll we'll continue next week. And like I said, you got you got to come back in a few months or whatever, and we'll uh, we'll we'll talk more about your career and uh, what you got brewing. Absolutely, we'll do. And look forward to seeing you and and everybody else in San Diego. See, what a jerk am I, you know? Man, the guy's trying to clean up his apartment and their studio, get ready for uh, a shoot on a documentary about Frank Miller. And uh, good news is I saw him tweet about it and tweet a nice picture of him and the filmmaker. And uh, he was very pleased with the interview, so I'm glad to see that. But we are going to continue the conversation, as I said with Bill, Thursday at Comic-Con, 2.30 in the afternoon. Uh, it's Room 24 ABC, the New Mutant Mutants Retrospective. And, uh, Ben, I hope you come. Uh, if not, don't worry. We're going to bring it to you from uh, for a new Word Balloon episode in the coming weeks. But uh, really excited to continue the conversation with Bill and have him back because, you know, we barely scratched the surface. We only got into the 90s. There's so much more to talk about. I want to talk more about uh, his inking collaborations because I always think that uh, I want to know just from, from his standpoint, you know, is it a different art head approaching things that way rather than painting? It has to be. But also... I've just been fascinated by some of those combinations of his art and some other people. I mean, he and Klaus Janssen are amazing. I loved when Sienkiewicz was inking over Mike Norton on Green Arrow. That was its own thing. It wasn't quite Sienkiewicz. It wasn't quite Norton. It kind of reminds me of comparing Jack Kirby's solo art to his art with Joe Simon and also Joe Simon's solo art. Very different things until the two guys got together. And I think uh, it, it makes for an interesting collaboration. So uh, we'll, uh, we'll bug Bill. We'll give, we'll give him a few months off. But, uh, and I don't know if necessarily we'll continue the conversation in 2017. But sooner than later, 
I will be talking to Bill Sienkiewicz again more about his process and some of the other works that he's done over the years. I really hope you enjoyed today's Word Balloon, brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. As I said, thank you, League, for your support. The new members, I truly appreciate it, and uh, the continuing members as well. You help make this show possible, and I can't thank you enough. If you uh, would like to subscribe to Word Balloon, patreon.com slash wordballoon. It will take you to my Patreon page. Or you can click on the ad on the front page of WordBalloon.com. WordBalloon is also brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. Uh, how about, uh, man, just in time for finally Volume 3, we've got uh, the Mage Trade Paperback, Book 1, The Hero Discovered, Matt Wagner on the writing and the art. I cannot believe that finally Matt is comfortable to write this third volume of Mage. And uh, can't wait to see where the story takes us. But go back to the beginning. 216 pages, 50% off, $9.99. There's also Shade, the Changing Girl. Interesting twist, Cecil Castellucci. I always have to go into my Harry Carey voice because it almost sounds like she was a left fielder for the Brooklyn Dodgers back in the 40s. Here comes number 16, Cecil Castellucci. Boy, oh boy. Becky Cloonan cover. Uh, Marley Zarcone, the fine artist uh, Asher, Asher Powell also, uh, I believe, uh, doing the right No, excuse me, Asher Powell doing the art Am I right? No, Marley, uh, Marley Zarcone Shame on me, man Boy, I'll tell you uh, Andy Park's doing a little uh, bit Ryan Kelly doing some Kelly Fitzpatrick in Volume 1 It's 50% off, it's just $8.49 You can get Justice League Rebirth Volume 1, the hardcover Brian Hitch, Tony Daniel doing the art Great combination. Loved when Hitch was uh, solo on Justice League and uh, enjoying uh, the continued stories that have been happening since Rebirth. And uh, this collects Rebirth, number one of Justice League, and uh, the first 11 issues of the regular series. 312 pages, 50% off, $17.49. Some of the great deals on InStockTrades.com. Check it out now. You're going to find a hell of a lot more at uh, Great Books at Great Prices. InStockTrades.com. Again, Word Balloon brought to you by Alex Ross Art. I hope you will come to uh, my uh, panel with uh, Bill Sienkiewicz, the New Mutants Retrospective. It's happening Thursday, room 24ABC, uh, and I, I can't wait. At 2.30 on uh, Thursday afternoon, uh, I am compiling uh, photos, not just of the New Mutants, but some of the other things as well. And uh, please, if you have New Mutants questions, that's great. But also, if you have uh, more questions about other portions of Bill's career, uh, what a great way to do it, and I hope this interview may prompt some of you uh, Comic-Con goers to think of some questions to ask Bill. So uh, thanks again, and uh, I hope to uh, see you at Comic-Con. I will be doing a live Facebook video and some pre-recorded video interviews as well at Alex's booth, 2415, also at Bill Sienkiewicz's booth. So uh, thank you very much, Alex Ross Art. Thanks for listening to today's Word Balloon. I'll have another episode for you very shortly. And, uh, man, I'm telling you, it's, uh, it's been a great July. It's been a great June, May. I mean, uh, I, I really can't thank the, uh, the guests enough for providing the wonderful conversations. And to the listeners for listening and enjoying them, sharing them via uh, you know, social media. If you like what you hear, uh, let somebody know. That's the best way you can help me here at Word Balloon as we gather this audience and it continues to grow. Thanks again for listening. I hope to see you in San Diego. We'll see how my voice is on the next episode. But uh, until then, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2017.